Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we will be discussing an article from the February issue of the Beef Watch newsletter titled Asking Why with Systems Thinking, a powerful tool for problem solving. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by Dr. Brian Vanderlei, who's a Nebraska Extension Veterinarian with the Great Plains Veterinary Education Center near Clay Center, Nebraska. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. Well, Brian, this question of why and thinking about utilizing a systems approach to decision making is a conversation that you and I have had a number of times, specifically as we think about biological systems and as we think about beef cattle production. Oftentimes, many of the challenges we face, we see the symptoms, but getting to the source of the problem can be a much greater challenge. Give us some perspective on how to utilize systems thinking as we think about some of the issues we think about in beef production systems, and what may be the value of that as we try to find ways to intervene and make changes that really have long-term value and impact. I've been a relative newcomer to the discipline of systems thinking, and this has been a it's been a really interesting and enlightening journey for me as I've, I've come to be aware of this discipline. And I think that's an important point maybe to start out with is that there's a lot of people who are very good at thinking about systems and looking at all the pieces in part, seeing how they interact with each other. I think uh, people that, that you and I work with, Aaron, every day are really good at this because there's so much of that in their lives. Ranchers and farmers and feedlot producers, they, they really understand how if you try to push the system a little on one side, it just pokes out on the other side. And it, it, it can be very frustrating to see how difficult it is to make a system behave the way we want it to. And, and I think the perspective that's really been important for me in the, in the last few years is I've familiarized myself with this discipline and, and really started to use it for the, the work that I do. Maybe the most important thing for me is it starts to really illustrate how systems that I've always felt like were very much out of my control are still impacted heavily by the things that I decide. The most important thing is, is that I often can't appreciate because of delays in the system communicating the results of my decisions back to me. I don't associate those things together, right? I make a decision and it takes time and it happens in a different place. And by the time some feedback comes to me, that actually is informing me about the consequences of my decision. I no longer associate the feedback and the decision with each other. And what that does is it switches my perspective as I look at difficult systems problems from a, a perspective of what are the external factors that are driving this problem that I have to try to control. And it switches that around and makes me think really hard about how is my response to the problem affecting the problem potentially affecting the root cause of the problem. So the idea behind systems thinking is to identify these really deep causes, fundamental causes, if you will, of problems and generating leverage or, or solutions that target those things as opposed to putting a patch on a problem at a higher level um, that often deals with a symptom rather than really takes a, a hard pass at those fundamental issues that we see. So maybe, a, can I give an example? That's yes. kind of, that's heady talk. Yeah. And <laughs> maybe an example would be useful. So I, I know that you've used a, uh, the example in your article about pink eye 
And I'm going to back up one step and let's just talk about disease in general. One of the things that I have come to appreciate about a lot of our, our cattle production systems is that there's a tremendous amount of risk in cattle production systems. And that risk, it comes from a lot of sources. And, and what we're risking is capital. Like we've got a lot into these systems. There's a lot of money in them. There's a lot of time in them. There's a lot of resources in them. And frankly, there's a lot of emotions in them. We've invested a tremendous amount of emotional capital into our systems. If we wanted to make a living, you could make a, an objective argument that there might be easier ways to do that than agriculture. You know, I've got a brother that's a mechanic that seems to get along pretty good financially with his decision. Uh, but he also represents the emotional tie to agriculture because he just can't quit. And I think we know a lot of people that are like that. So when we think about disease risk, we're risking that, that investment in all those categories. And risk is something that people have variable tolerance for, but they're going to do what they can to mitigate that for the most part. So when, when I'm thinking specifically about disease, if there's disease pressure in a system, people move to mitigate that risk. And there's fundamentally two ways that they can do that. One way that you can mitigate the risk of disease in your system is to respond to that disease and make sure that it doesn't hurt too much. So things like treatments. And um, I would include vaccinations as a disease response as part of that that mitigation strategy. And in the short term, responding to the disease and mitigating its impact in an operation is definitely going to take the pressure off. In the long term, if you really want to take that disease risk out of a system, you've got to identify those fundamental things that drive disease. Like if we have a disease process, for instance, let's talk about scours or pink eye. Why does the disease happen? What about the, the pathogens or the environment or the cattle involved makes it possible? And how do we interrupt that so that we don't have to rely on a vaccine or treatment to make the disease risk in our system less likely? And I think those two are related because we often feel when we've got a good treatment protocol in place or we've got a solid vaccination plan in place that we have done what it takes to eliminate the disease risk in our system when really what we've done is just respond to that disease risk by putting in mitigation strategies. And when we haven't fundamentally changed the ability of that disease to get into our system, we've just put some patches on that make it less likely that we'll feel the consequences of it. The problem with that is, is that, that complacency, that, that feeling that we've done what we, we need to to control the risk is only valid if those tools work. So as soon as the treatment protocol fails or the bug mutates around our vaccine, then we don't have the fundamental fix in place anymore and we're going to be at an increased risk of disease. And because we felt like we've done something, we feel like the solution is to do that thing more frequently. So we'll treat more, we'll vaccinate more, we'll put more vaccines in. And that keeps us off the task of looking for those fundamental causes of disease in our systems. That's a, in systems thinking, they've got some fancy words for that. And the, the word is, it's an archetype. It's a common way that systems fail. That archetype is called shifting burden. When we shift the burden away from fundamental solutions that are more likely over long term to eliminate a problem or pressure and instead focus on short term fixes, 
that actually make it more difficult in the long term for us to implement those fundamental solutions. Well, I really appreciate your perspective on that. I, you know, an example, if we want to try to get to something in my mind, uh, thinking about use of wormers, and uh, you and I both have an interest in this, we won't pick on beef producers here, but specifically thinking about worming products in sheep and goats. Absolutely. Perfect example. That's an example in my mind and the, where we've used the products to try to address the problems of internal parasites in populations of sheep and goats to a point now where those products are no longer effective and we have populations of sheep and goats that are very susceptible in some cases to these internal parasites and it's being very detrimental to those producers. So we thought we were solving a problem, so to speak, by providing a worming product and short term, we actually saw improvement. But as we continue to use that product more often, more frequently, those worms that were internal parasites that could survive the product multiplied. Now longer is that product effective and we actually have selected for sheep and goats that have very little parasite resistance to those as well. And so it starts to become a cascading effect almost where we're in a really difficult situation in terms of solutions to that. Yeah, you're spot on with that one. That's actually one of my favorite examples in part because we don't have to pick on beef producers, but there's two things that happened in there that are interesting maybe and maybe should be taken as as object lessons for those of us because we can certainly talk about examples in cattle that follow similar patterns the two things that are always kind of stand out to me about the example of parasites and anti-parasitic treatments is one of the key concepts of systems thinking or at least a very common observation is that yesterday's solutions generate today's problems <laughs> that's definitely applicable in the parasite discussion what we've seen in small ruminants is that as they, they started to experience the ill consequences of parasites in small ruminants like sheep and goats, they intensified their efforts to develop these deworming tools. And they found that they could definitely alleviate the problem. But because of mechanisms at the time that weren't understood, which is, is resistance to those products, that that's what we know now, they had to use them with increasing frequency. and the one of the key things that we should be looking out for in our systems is that if we find ourselves compelled to use our fix more and more rapidly we need to be thinking really hard about whether our fix is actually driving the problem right the the first the first rule of finding yourself in a hole is to stop digging and that is definitely applicable in that type of situation so that illustrates very clearly a principle of systems thinking which is that fixes can have unintended consequences that actually drive the need to use the fix. And that was, that was clearly visible in the, the anti-parasitic use in sheep and goats. The other thing that's really clear about that is that there is a fundamental solution that we recognize for sheep and goats. And you brought this up too, Aaron. We actually can do a very nice job of selecting for sheep and goats that are tolerant of parasites. It's, it's genetic selection, basically. And one of the things that uh, when I have discussions with producers about this one is that there's a perception that they can either choose to do genetic selection or not choose to do genetic selection. And if they don't choose to do it, they can just keep deworming. And one of the things that's become abundantly clear to me is that genetic selection is going to happen. It's a question of whether it happens under your control or out of your control. 
And that is where the catastrophe sets in because what happens is we find ourselves in vicious or virtuous cycles. If you use genetic selection as a tool in conjunction with deworming small ruminants, you can safely and effectively select for sheep and goats that can stand parasites while you protect the ones that can't stand them with the deworming products. And over time, as you do that, it, you need less antiparasitic drugs because you have more genetically resistant animals and then even less antiparasitic needs because more and more of your animals become genetically resistant to parasites. That's a virtuous cycle, right? We all want that to happen. That's I make money so I can invest it, so I can make more money, so I can invest it, so I can make more money and, and on and on forever. That's what we all want. The problem is when you find yourself in that same cycle, but you flip the, the sign, you're in what's called a vicious cycle. And we all, we all recognize those. So if, if I choose not to implement genetic selection for parasite resistance, I have to deworm my sheep more often because they are acceptable, which prevents me from identifying those animals that are genetically tolerant because I'm deworming all the time. And I'm supporting... I'm not adapting them to their environments. We can talk about this in cattle, right, Aaron? We're not adapting them to their environments to be able to cope genetically with, with the environment they find themselves in. And over time, we have to deworm more often to get ourselves out of a parasite problem that, that we're not dealing with at the fundamental level. But what happens is eventually that crashes. It can't continue on. We don't have wormers that Now we have a bunch of susceptible animals. And the parasites very quickly kill off they're not genetically resistant. And then you've gone through the process anyway. It just happened out of your control and in a very, very painful way. And that's, I think that illustrates the value of systems thinking to our producers is that if we can use this tool, we, we might end up in the same place. But hopefully we can end up in that, with that solution more quickly and we can do it with less pain. And really that, that represents a, a goal that, Right now, we struggle through the pain of, of learning these things the hard way. And it'd be really nice if we could figure out how to do that differently. I think what really jumps out in my mind is what can often happen is we, we find a solution such as a wormer product and the initial response we get is so positive that that's what we focus on as being the solution. And then all of a sudden we, as you well said, the solution actually starts to create a problem for us. And then by the time we recognize that's occurred, we're in a situation where oftentimes getting back out of that uh, is much more challenging. These types of problems happen in all systems. And, you know, a, a system can be your family. A system can be your ranch. A system can be your church. A system can be a company or a feedlot or even a group of friends can define the parameters of a system. and when you start looking at this on, on various levels, it starts to uh, help show the root causes of the problem, which I have found extremely useful as, as I approach my work here at the University of Nebraska as a, as a researcher, as an extension specialist. And it's also helped in my perspective as I look at some of the, the issues that we struggle with internally as, a, as an institution or things that happen in my family, it's, it's definitely not a, a one-size-fits-all tool. To me, it's more about perspective and about understanding problems than it is about um, the solutions have to be generated from that perspective. And 
there's no one size fits all approach to that, certainly. But it just offers so much opportunity for understanding problems at a deeper level. And when we can understand those problems at a deeper level and change how we think about the problem, redefine how we intervene in the problem and try to get in at that that deeper level where the 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 change is going to have a more lasting impact turning that around in our current production systems we have some amazing capabilities in our in our food production systems you know there's all kinds of stats out there relative to how efficiently we can turn a resource into food for people and the the and that's wonderful and it we we need that because there's people that need to eat and that's people in agriculture are passionate about that but one of the unintended consequences that i see that i think we can use a tool like systems thinking to both understand and potentially avert is that as we as we push our systems harder and harder they're designed to create the effects they get and sometimes we see some ill effects coming out of these things right we in, in cattle, I think one of the, the big things that we can see as an unintended consequence of the way we produce beef is that our system is designed to create a high prevalence of respiratory disease. The way the system is kind of segmented and there's not a lot of communication and feedback up and down the, the chain amongst the segments, the way that we use extensive resources to produce cattle in places where we really can't do anything else and the the ideas and the beliefs that people bring to the table when they when they identify themselves and execute as beef producers all those things work together to create a system that according to the the data we have produces a treatment rate of about 16% across the board in our in our post weaning cattle and that that actually I should say that's in feedlot cattle that's not counting stalkers and backgrounders and people that weren't included in that survey so we, we talk about respiratory disease and respiratory disease prevention a lot, but really the system has been put together to create that. And if we want to see a fundamental change in the amount of respiratory disease that we have in the country, we probably need a fundamental change by the, the structure of our industry or the, the production of beef works. Then we got to ask the question, do we want that? We all want respiratory disease to go away, but in, in some cases we can debate the solutions. But some of the other industries have solved those problems with vertical integration. Is that, is that what the beef industry wants? So asking the question is, why do cattle get sick, as, as you pointed out in your, your article, is, is important at a couple of levels. One is it helps us target the intervention to the most fundamental cause if we can find it. Or it'll at least help us target to the most fundamental cause that we can find. Number two is that it can help us understand people are trying to use the information they have available to them to make rational decisions. And if we ever look out into the world around us and see people who apparently are behaving in in an irrational way, the best explanation for that is that we do not appreciate their perspective very well because people tend to make very rational decisions given their view of the system. So it does a bunch of interesting things from my perspective. Systems thinking has pushed me to see how I might be influencing a system in a way that I I like the outcomes. It helps me appreciate that people see systems in different ways and that my view is 
certainly not the only one. And when you start looking for the things that drive people to behave in the way that they do, it really generates a lot of empathy for their, their predicament, right? If you start looking hard, you, when you walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, it starts making sense why they're doing something that might hurt me. That's not their intent, but that's a rational reaction given their view of their system. So I, those things have been really, it's cliche, but they're empowering, right? If you can change how you think about a problem, you might have a better opportunity to solve that problem by doing that than by intervening at a, at a level that is symptomatic more than fundamental. We talk about the icebergs. So when I talk about high, I talk about above the water and below the water. The problem's the iceberg. You, can, you got the part you can see. So high-level interventions are at the trends and patterns, intervening where you can, you can see what's happening. And often those are not as effective as going deep into the structure and changing how somebody thinks about a problem or trying to move past a, a really common paradigm something like that. So again, that's kind of, that's heady stuff. Maybe another example is, is in line. The way I like to think about, so let's go back to that, that disease pressure example. If I view vaccination as, as a preventative health intervention to, to reduce my disease risk, and that makes me feel like I've, I've done what it takes to keep disease risk out of my herd. And, and that feeling of satisfaction with the job prevents me from looking further into the fundamental things that drive my disease risk, like poor biosecurity or the inability to cope with weather events in my system because of how it's designed or, or something along that line, right? But let, let's just stick with disease. So if vaccination is my solution to disease, rather than looking at how the disease gets into my, my herd in the first place, I'm going to be satisfied with implementing vaccination and I probably will continue to run the risk of introduction of disease into my herd because I haven't tried to stop it at the level of introduction. If I change my thinking to instead consider vaccination as a failure to keep disease challenge away from my cattle, I am going to to focus more on preventing the need for an animal to use its vaccine protection and less on picking the exact right vaccine. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it really does. It's, it's the situation where we're not saying you don't use the tool of vaccine. Exactly. We're saying you use the tool, but recognize why do I need to provide this protection in the first place? Or why do I need to, I maybe shouldn't say protection, maybe insurance, why do I need to be vaccinating this animal in the first place? And is there a problem someplace in my system that's requiring me to use vaccine anyway? And could I do something to change my management or change the production system that, again, not saying you wouldn't use vaccine or maybe could reduce in some cases the use of it, but why is the problem occurring? And is there some intervention that would provide me the opportunity to reduce the use of my need for that insurance product? Yeah, that insurance analogy is a great one. So to flesh that out just a little bit more, vaccine really is an insurance policy against uh, an introduction of a pathogen that I can't control. Let's think about that from the perspective of car insurance, right? If I buy car insurance with the idea that I'm going to take my car out at night and drive it down the wrong side of the road, 200 miles an hour with my lights off, 
expecting that when I crash, which eventually will happen if I do that, that I'm going to get a new car. That's probably not a great approach because we all know that there's collateral damage, right? If, if I get hurt in the accident and I, I can't walk again or something that even though I have a new car, that really isn't as valuable as just not getting in the accident. So the idea then would be to shift to a, a point where maybe you get rid of the car and you don't need car insurance anymore. You know, and that that's kind of the the level of intervention that I think about. If we buy insurance because we either expect to get in a wreck or we have no way of preventing one, that is a pretty compromised position to be in. That's not risk avoidance. That's risk mitigation. You know, we're, we're, we're expecting it to happen. We're just trying to make it hurt the least amount possible. And sometimes that is absolutely necessary. There's nothing wrong with a short-term fix or a symptomatic fix because you have to live to fight another day. If, if I buy car insurance and get in a wreck, at least I have a new car that will get me back and forth to work so that I can learn how to drive better, right? So I don't get in a wreck the next time. Or maybe I figure out a way to get to work so I don't need a car at all. And then insurance isn't necessary anymore. And I think that's the point. What we want to do is get to the point, if possible, where disease challenge isn't a risk. And we can't do that with all of them, but there are some diseases we can do a better job of that with, and maybe we can get to the point where the vaccine isn't as useful. And there's, there's more than vaccination, right? We need to think bigger than just vaccination. You can, you can do this with any particular risk or problem and think about how your attitude toward that problem and the solutions you currently use may or may not be impacting your ability to implement a more fundamental, longer lasting solution. And one of my colleagues always points out that just because you implemented a fundamental solution doesn't mean you won't ever feel the problem or pressure again. It just hopefully means that you won't feel it as often. So maybe it's, it's better to think about the symptomatic fix as, as the insurance policy you need to prevent catastrophic loss or as a, as a live to fight another day intervention, right? It's not ideal. It's going to cost us something, but it's the price of staying in the business so that we can, we have time to implement a more fundamental solution to a problem later. Well, I know for many of our listeners, this is going to be a new concept we've talked about today and one they might be challenged with, I guess, as they think about that. But I think what you said early on is farmers and ranchers understand systems. They understand that cause and effect are often distant in time and space, meaning what I did a year or two ago could actually be impacting me now. And so I really think that provides, since they're dealing with biological systems on a daily basis, they understand that. And so I just would encourage folks as we go through the rest of this year, as you think about some of the challenges that you have, think about asking some why questions. And I would say this seems a little funny, but sometimes you need to ask it several times to really get down to the bottom of the iceberg, so to speak, which was what Dr. Vanderlei was talking about earlier to understand where is this problem really occurring at its root? What's the structure that may be contributing to that problem? And what are my opportunities to intervene in that system in a way that could have a long-term impact? I agree with that completely, Aaron. One thing I'll add to that is that <clears throat> systems thinking works best as a team sport. So if you have a group of, of uh, producers, colleagues, advisors, veterinarians can can fill this role but other people that you you trust and that you respect and and one of my colleagues Dr. Don Groves uh, he always he always tells me he said Brian 
don't be scared to just sit back and admire the iceberg. Look, you know, admire that problem. And, and doing that as a team can really be valuable because you get different, again, you get different perspective. And if you ask why all the time, you eventually get down into those deeper structures of that iceberg and you can really find that opportunity to change something that will fundamentally affect how the problem works in your system. And you can do that for, people can help you do that and you can help other people do that. And that's kind of what makes it a a really satisfying uh, endeavor is that it's a way for a lot of people to really impact how each other's operations go. So don't be afraid to do this. You can do it by yourself, but it becomes way more effective if you can do it with, with colleagues or friends that you trust uh, to, to share that type of information with. So team systems thinking is very valuable, uh, maybe more so than individual systems thinking. No, I think that's a great point. And I think that's a great point to kind of wrap up our discussion. I really appreciate you joining me today and for, bringing some perspective on systems thinking and specifically how we might think about applying that to beef cattle production. I appreciate you joining me today on the podcast. Again, this is an article that was discussed in the February issue of the Beef Watch newsletter. The title of the article is Asking Why Was Systems Thinking a Powerful Tool for Problem Solving?